0: Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. Let's take our Bibles, and now we're opening the final chapter of the Sermon on the Mount for our study, Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7. And perhaps you have heard someone say, or maybe you have even told someone else at one time or another, don't judge me, don't judge me. It's a very, very common phrase. Matthew 7.1 has perhaps eclipsed people's use over John 3.16 of familiarity. Many people would probably now say, John 316, I'm not sure what that verse is, but doesn't it say in the Bible that you can't judge me? Don't judge me. Judge not that you be not judged. And that's as much as someone knows when they offer up that tidbit of scriptural wisdom. Don't judge me. Now, honestly, many people will find the content of this sermon from Jesus to be quite offensive and out of step with culture. Well, that is, after all, the entire series we've entitled this counterculture. Jesus never intended to fit in with culture. The Pharisees were the religious leaders who were very, very, very impressed with their own keeping of their standards, and they were proficient at finding the ways that everyone else was failing to keep their standards. And they could point it out a mile away, and one of the individuals that they identified as failing to keep their standards was none other than Jesus. So they rejected, they judged Jesus as unfit, unqualified, not worthy of worshiping. And so by rejecting Jesus, and therefore they rejected his followers, they rejected his message, and nothing much has changed in the last 2,000 years that there are very many people who are religious, but they reject the essentials of the gospel. And they refuse to bow their knee before Jesus Christ. Can any society actually function without judgment, without differentiating between right and wrong, good and evil? Well, we're watching our society implode. We're just completely off all moorings. We have lost and forsaken a foundation that we were established on to the point that to simply declare something as right or wrong puts you immediately out of step with and in risk of being canceled by who knows how many people. We think about this. We are living in a land, this country that we live in, that no longer do we feel bad about certain sins, what God calls immoral, what God calls evil, what God has forbidden in His Word. We now have moved beyond just saying it doesn't matter to actually throwing parades and celebrating what God has condemned. Attempting to live without moral laws, without guidelines, without the restraints is like building any type of structure, business, building, home, and just not holding to the standards that are prescribed in mechanical engineering. You can look it up in Ohio, University of Ohio. There's an entire structure built for the purpose of not having any point. And someone receiving a tour of that building said, Did the uh, mechanical engineers approach the foundations the same way that they did all of these meaningless, pointless, going to nowhere staircases and structures? Because if you apply that same principle to footings, it's all gonna fall. And tragically right now in Surfside, Florida, there has been a tragedy beyond tragedies and they're looking into this very thing. So this culture that we live in that wants to throw away all the standards, what do you hear in the news right now? Who did not pay attention to the standards? Who didn't do their job? Whose fault is it that the building collapsed and lives have perished because somebody didn't do what they were supposed to do. So what is the point of this? As we think about those who have responded to that scene and the scene continues to unfold of tragedy and broken hearts and shattered lives. And now they're wondering, is the other building built by this builder, should we empty that building as well? If he applied the principles to this building, to that building, are those safe in there? And yet beloved people are building their lives on no boundaries. No rules. What do we hear commonly? That's my truth. Whatever is true for me. Well, maybe that builder felt that way. And truly lives have perished. Don't think it any less if you build your life spiritually, if you build your framework of decision-making on no boundaries but your own opinion and feelings, prepare for destruction. Jesus is very serious in this chapter. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus emphasized the coming of the kingdom along with the implications for disciples of that kingdom. And there he delivered an exposition of the Mosaic law from a different mountain, one of grace, given by one greater than Moses, and that is Jesus Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus emphasized the fatherhood of God for those who are disciples, children of God. And that comes with implications for every disciple of Jesus Christ, that you have a father in heaven who is good and you can trust him and you ought to trust him in everything, with everything, trust him. So disciples don't live or we ought not live preoccupied with food and clothing and daily daily necessities, the temporary things of life, because we have a father in heaven who knows exactly what we need. So seek him first, seek him first. Disciples must avoid becoming like the world and thus misrepresenting the gospel is ineffective. That if we're disciples, but we just function like everybody else, we just go with the flow and we do everything that everybody else does, then we've lost our our saltiness. We've lost that there's something different and refreshing about us because we're just like everybody else. But as we enter into Matthew chapter seven, there's another ditch to avoid. And the other ditch perhaps claims more people than people, you know, who call themselves Christians and they just fit in, they blend in. And that is the overzealous Christian. That is the Christian who has the spiritual magnifying glass and they are going around finding fault with everybody else and they're doing it zealously, they believe, for Christ. Christ. Danger, we've hit the other ditch. Beloved, the judgment that was poured out on Jesus Christ, He bore the punishment for all who turn and trust in Him. For those who do not turn and trust in Him, judgment is still hanging over their heads. It's only the grace and mercy of God that keeps sinners right now from plunging headlong into a Christless eternity. It's often the very God that people hate and blame and judge to be unfit who is keeping them alive. They're breathing his air. They're walking his dirt And he's patient with them. He's not weak. He's patient with them. He's long-suffering with them as he was with you and he was with me and did not fully repay me according to my sins. So what does Jesus have to say about this overzealous disciple? Matthew chapter 7, we're going to look at the first six verses this morning. Follow along there in your Bibles. As Jesus says, judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let's pray together. Father, we, we need your help this morning. There is not one of us who is exempt from this, this easy position of mind that we will find someone around us who's inferior to us, people who don't, measure up to our standards. And whether we ever say it or not, you know our thoughts when we think ill of them. When we think of them that they're stupid or they're foolish or they're not as good of a Christian as we are, and maybe it never makes it out of our lips. But you are the one who knows our thoughts. So we're inviting you, your spirit to open us, lay us open and bare before your word today and cut away all that does not please you, and then build us up, cleanse us and build us up in every way that is pleasing to you, we pray. For the glory and honor of Jesus, we pray, amen. All right, this morning, we're gonna unpack this together. From this text, we see four choices disciples must make. And there are two ditches to be avoided. One ditch is apathy and the other is abuse, and it comes in the name of religion. It comes in the name of religion. We must avoid apathy, and we must avoid being abusive. And this is what Jesus, I believe, is dealing with, and I trust that this is helpful, and that you may even jot these things down to meditate on them as you go throughout this week. And really may this sermon mark our hearts and we live the rest of our lives meditating on this message. The first choice that we must make as disciples is number one, delight in mercy over judgment. That you and I would choose to delight in mercy over judgment. And this is where we live and we avoid being judgmental. Judgmentalism is the word. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Oh, that we would delight in mercy over judgment, that we would avoid at all costs being judgmental. Why? Because, beloved, God is the ultimate judge. This word that Jesus uses here in the Greek, it's kreno. Another word is similar to it, akin to it, is crema, criminal justice system, crema. It's the root of that. The word "crino," it means to separate. It means to put asunder. It means to pick out. It means to select for condemnation. Okay, so a, another word that you could use is to be condescending. It's that you're looking to find fault with others. Well, we need to understand exactly what Jesus meant here because we've heard it how many times, don't judge me, judge not that you be not judged. I can do whatever I want, don't judge me. Well, Jesus cannot be going against the rest of scripture. He cannot be forbidding all types of judgment. But in fact, he is distinguishing here between acts of judgment and judgmentalism. The merciful, he said in the sermon, receive mercy. Those who forgive because they've been forgiven will be forgiven. It's a lifestyle. It's a change that has come about. This is perhaps one of the most misunderstood and abused texts in the Bible. We want to straighten this out with the help of the Lord today. Judgment is necessary. It is found in both testaments of the scripture beloved, think about this. Jesus is part of the triune God. He's a member of the Trinity. He was before creation. All things were created through him and for him, Paul writes to the Colossians. So he is the Godhead. He's part of the Godhead in the Old Testament. He was there when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. In Genesis 3, they were kicked out and judgment was pronounced upon the man and upon the woman and upon the serpent. He was there when the flood, the great flood judged the entire world and only Noah and his family were saved and they were brought out through the ark. They were saved and rescued. He was there when fire and brimstone rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah where Lot had taken up residence and blended in with the rest of the people and barely could the angel get him out and had to grab him and usher him out of the city with his wife and two daughters and that was it and the fire and of God fell upon that lust-filled, perverse city, all types of sexual sin. He was there when Pharaoh said, who is this God that I should obey him? These people are mine. This city is mine. And 10 plagues later, he realized there's nothing that is mine. And he still pursued them to the detriment of his army. He was there. Then the children of Israel Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what happened to them? The whole generation except Joshua and Caleb, the judgment of God fell upon them for their disobedience and unbelief. They refused to obey God. That wasn't okay. They dishonored God, and only Joshua and Caleb made it into the promised land. The rest, that whole generation died in those 40 years in the wilderness then the pagan nations as Joshua led in the conquest of Canaan and there they pursued and they proceeded to deal with those nations beginning with Jericho god's judgment fell on city after city after city but then as the children of Israel would go grow into rebelliousness against the Lord, rebelliousness against the prophets, rebellious against the word of God. And they would add idolatry into their worship. Then we read through judges and kings and chronicles. And it just goes through these cycles of God being merciful and providing and them forgetting God and walking away from God. And then the king would come up and he would be righteous. And then his son would come up and bring back all of the worship to Baal and all of the other idols and just cycle after cycle. And the book of Judges is like a downward spiral. You ever put a Penny and one of those things in the supermarket, and you just watch that thing go down. That's the Book of Judges. It ends with every man does that which is right in his own eyes. Uh, that's pretty much our address in our nation. Don't judge me. I can do what I want to do. Believers will appear, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians five ten, before the judgment seat of Christ. So now we're into the New Testament. We're children of God, but. There's a coming day, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There's a day coming where you, if you are a child of God, you are in Christ, but you will stand before the one with nail-pierced hands, bearing the body in his body the marks of the crucifixion and we will stand before him one day let that let that reality weigh in on every decision that we make beloved the judgment that fell on Christ Paul would write later in that same cha- chapter 2 Corinthians 5:21 so that we can be justified That Jesus was punished as if he had committed all of our sins so that we can be treated as if we have lived in his perfect obedience. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he, the Father, made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin. He was perfect. He was sinless. So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So, So listen to that again, that God treated Jesus... Very two important words. As if he committed all our sin. He was crucified, buried, and rose again so that God in his grace and mercy can treat you and me, if you've turned and trusted in Jesus, as if I have perfectly obeyed my whole life. That's what happened. In the cross, in the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But judgment will fall upon all unbelievers in the future. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 9.27, says it this way: And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been, here's where judgment fell on him, offered once to bear the sins of many. Why many? That's for all who believe. Okay? There's, we don't believe in universalism. If they've never heard, then they'll be okay. No, not according to scripture. You must hear the gospel. You must repent of your sin, trust in Jesus, and receive this gift of salvation. Bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Does that describe you? That you are eagerly waiting for his return. Last week, observing communion, that's what we wait. We wait for his return. He's coming again. Do this until I come. Now, Revelation 21, many of you will be familiar with this passage. This is a beautiful passage. This is a passage you have probably heard at a loved one's funeral. And we're reminded of this. And and there's the, the good, the blessed side of this. Revelation 21 and verse one in John, he writes the same John that, The message came from, you can go ahead and pull that up, Revelation 21. The same John that wrote last Sunday's message. The elder, the apostle of love. And he writes it this way, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I have a little more perspective on that this week. Of all that goes into being prepared for that moment. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. You see this fellowship. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. It is finished. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. What have we just heard? This is a complete reversal of the curse that happened in Genesis three. God walked with in the cool of the day, Adam and Eve. I am your maker. I am your God. You are in complete and total fellowship with me. It was the first and last perfect marriage. Man fell, Genesis 3.15, God's plan of redemption began to unfold, and we have just heard that account in those verses, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't just stop with the positive. It doesn't just stop with, so everybody's good, right? We're all in, right? No. There's the little three-letter word, but, verse 8, Revelation 21, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, that is all sex outside of marriage. And it doesn't matter how old or young you are. Well, I was already married before, so now, you know, uh uh-uh. Only within marriage is sexuality sacred, period. God takes this very seriously and marriage is defined by God and reiterated by Jesus in Matthew 19, one woman, one man for life till death do us part. Is it a big deal to just say, well, does it really matter, pastor? sorcerers, okay, including horoscopes, palm reading, idolaters, it's just anything before God, your favorite sport, food, clothing, reputation, fame, anything that's not the true and living God, what is able to support and bear up the weight of your soul, anything coming before God and all liars Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Is Jesus saying there's no such thing as judgment? Judge not, that you be not judged. If he is, he's out of step with scripture and he's out of step with the Trinity, and therefore he would be a liar. So, beloved, that can't be what he means because God is the ultimate judge. So there's judgment that comes from God. We see it in both Testaments. There's to be judgment in the home, that environment that we're first brought into. Parents have to discern, am I gonna let you watch my kid? "Eh." You're juggling chainsaws with fire in your mouth right now. I think I'm gonna find someone else. I don't think I'm gonna trust my kid to you. Oh, just another kid in here, no big deal. No, no. We have to raise children for the glory of God. So we've been given a rod for discipline to be used in love, in rearing up children, that they understand consequences, they understand the difference between right and wrong, that they learn who God is that made them, that he's worthy and they're in awe of him because they see their parents in awe of how good God is. Judgment in government, Romans 13 There's to be the place where the Lord has given to government the sword. He doesn't have the sword in vain. Why? To promote what is right and to punish what is wrong, to punish evil. That is the role of government. And once again, a corrective, the role of the government is not to be God in your life and supply all your needs and all your wants and that is we are coming as in our culture right now to a head-on collision, is it gonna be that we worship God or we worship the government? This is where we're at. We must be discerning. Judgment in the church is an environment, it's appropriate, but the right kind, not judgmentalism, but discernment between right and wrong. Jesus does not assume that the church will be without problems, that everybody who names the name of Christ will just be fine. They'll always do what they're supposed to do. That's not me. We need one another and we need a standard and then we need to know how do we apply that standard first of all to myself and how do I encourage and exhort and help my brothers and sisters in Christ? So how should a church respond to a member, to a brother who is misbehaved? And that brother learned one verse, Matthew seven, one, judge not that you be not judged. So I'm leaving my wife and I'm moving in with a girlfriend. Judge me not, don't judge me, says that person who calls himself a Christian. And there you are, <gasps> what do I say? They've got me. No, they don't. No, they don't, that's twisting scripture. Matthew 18, every member, as we go through a discovery membership class, we go through this passage, Matthew 18 and verse 15. Jesus lays out later in this same gospel. Matthew records this, he puts this in. Uh, Matthew 18 and verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between him, you and him alone, start there. If he listens to you, you have, here's the whole point. It's not to have a one-up on your brother. It's to gain your brother. If they're struggling, if they're down, verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. You take two or three brothers with you or sisters in Christ who love the Lord, love them, and listen and help and and reach out to that loved one. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And how did Jesus treat them? Think about that. How did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? The point is, he treated them well, but he wasn't confused about what is right and what is wrong. Read John chapter 4 and the woman at the well. How did he treat her? With great dignity and love and called her out of a lifestyle of sin. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And don't we often hear that as an encouragement if there's just a few people that show up for prayer? That's in the context of where two or three people, they read my word, they understand this is the lifestyle of a Christian, of a believer. Here's a brother and they're overtaken in sin. How are we gonna minister to them? It isn't making up our own standards, beloved. The church is not to make up their own human standards, their own human rules. We are to simply acknowledge what has God revealed in his scripture and let's help and encourage one another to do that. God's judgment fell upon Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter five. Why? They lied to the apostle Peter and Peter said to them, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, you have lied to God. And there the apostle Peter, contrary to false religions, he equates the spirit as part of the triune God, part of the Godhead. You have not lied to men, you have lied to God. And Ananias dropped dead. And Sapphira came in sometime later and she lied. She didn't have to give. They didn't have to give all of that money. But they lied about their gift because they wanted people to say, "Woo." What an offering! Amazing. They sold the property and gave the whole thing. Oh, I wish I could be like them. They wanted to hear the applause of men. And Peter said, While it was yours, wasn't it yours? You didn't have to give it all. So why not just be honest and say, Here's part of our sale of our property. Nothing wrong with that. But they lied. And the Lord dealt with them, and fear went throughout the church. And you know what? Read Acts 5, what happened. You would think that a church practicing church discipline would shrink in size. It might, but Acts 5 says it actually grew because people got their reputation. There's something different about what happens in the church than what happens in every other religious organization. They serve the living God in that place. Don't don't go in there and just bring your own ideas. This God lives, this God speaks, and this God acts. Do you worship that God or do you worship a God of your own invention, your own creation? The Corinthian church carried out the discipline on a young man sleeping with his father's wife, 1 Corinthians 5. They carried that out. In love, 2 Corinthians, Paul says, hey, he's repented. Now open your arms. Welcome him back. I believe that's who he's talking about in 2 Corinthians 2. Otherwise, where is he gonna go? He repented. Welcome him back in. That's the whole point. Matthew 7 and verse 15, Jesus warns, be on guard against the false prophets and false teachers. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That entails judgment, discernment, What are they saying? How are they living? Does that match what I read in Scripture? Anybody come saying when Jesus is coming back, sorry, you just put a big red X on you that you are a liar because Jesus already told us no man knows the day or the hour. Are you greater than Jesus? not going to listen to you. So Jesus is not forbidding judgment in general. Jesus is here forbid, forbidding a specific type of judgment. Judgmentalism, fault finding. Censoriousness is a million dollar word there. It's being hypercritical of others. This person is motivated by jealousy, envy and selfishness. And this person is never satisfied Once they're done correcting this person, they go on to the next person. They're never done. Their mission is always open-ended. There are always more people that are not living to their satisfaction. Matter of fact, if you come up to their standard, they're gonna find another way that you're not meeting their standard, and then they're gonna have the next thing to talk to you about. That's what Jesus is dealing. This person tends to magnify the faults of others and minimize their own. Let me say that again. They magnify the faults of others. They minimize their own. Now, now, let's just think about this in relationships. Isn't this the source of many conflicts in, conflicts in marriage and in work relationships? Is that we are guilty of magnifying the fault of a spouse, magnifying the wrongdoing, the fault of a coworker. And what we, when we mess up, what do we want? Grace. What do we want for others? Law. Law for you. Grace for me, flip that around. If we truly were magnifying before the Lord our own sinfulness, our own need of mercy, then we would be minimizing those around us and how they are failing according to our standard, and it would drive us back to the cross repeatedly where there's plenty of grace and mercy. Sinclair Ferguson, he says it this way. He said, of this person, all right, this fault-finding, judgmental person, he is looking for sins in other people. And he pounces whenever he sees one. So absorbed is he in his campaign that he is blind to the fact that he has sin in his own life that is far greater than anything he sees in the lives of others. He is guilty of of the sin of censoriousness. Building on that, John Stott says this, the censorious critic is a fault finder who is negative and destructive toward other people and enjoys actively seeking out their failings. He puts the worst possible construction on their motives, pours cold water on their schemes, and is ungenerous toward their mistakes. You know what's sad? Is how many think that Christians, that this describes us. That we've actually developed a reputation of just being unkind and mean. This type of spirit, you say, well pastor what are you really talking about how does this flesh out in body life of the church well when someone says you know i used to really like this kind of music and you don't do my kind of music and you start listening to the talk that comes out of that fault finding and critical you know the style of clothing that people wear to church now now there's where someone else will find that's where they really pick up on and The Bible translation that someone uses will be another area. The color and the look of the church building, vaccinations versus no vaccinations, that can really get someone going. Masks versus no masks, Republican versus Democrat, some who choose to drink and alcohol and some who abstain from alcohol, which is differentiated between drunkenness forbidden by Scripture. This race versus that race. And just a reminder, we're all extended from Adam's race. There is only one race. There's different ethnicities divided at the Tower of Babel. But there's only one race. We're made in the image of God. And what we see right now going on with the critical race theory is a a reconcocting, a reconstruction of racism in a different way that is meant to divide. And are we different as believers? Are we refreshing? Are we kind? Are we gracious? There's countless other ways of personal preference that becomes points of division. Instead of, think about this, think about God's design, bringing all different types of people into a church family and how that becomes a beautiful representation. There should be all tribes, nations, they will be in heaven, worshiping around the throne. And that magnifies the beauty of our king because he doesn't just represent this group of people, but all people who come by faith turning from their sin and trusting in Jesus. We say it often that, beloved, in the essentials, there should be unity, in the non-essentials, liberty, in all things, in all things, charity. Beloved, God is the ultimate judge. So Jesus is not forbidding judgment, going against the Father, going against himself as part of the triune God. Jesus is saying that God delights in showing mercy. And I'm just wondering, have you experienced this mercy, the mercy of God? Have you comprehended well that your many sins were all offensive to God and that you and I deserved hell? If we get a grip on this, if this grips our heart, that I deserved hell, how censorious can I be to my brother and my sister who's struggling in some way around me? I deserved hell and God showed me mercy when we plead for mercy, it's admitting guilt. Mercy in one sense is stronger than love because you can say, I love, you know, hiking in Michigan. Okay, that's great. It's beautiful, uh, wonderful. I love hiking wherever. I love the outdoors. That is, well, that was lovable. When you show mercy, it is you're not deserving of love you offended, you did wrong, you deserve hell. And in mercy, God still chose to love us and send his son for us and show us mercy. That at the cross, mercy and truth met and they kissed because God is just and the justifier. His justice is upheld by showing mercy. So Paul, he describes this In Romans 2, he's writing to those religious people who are the the pros at pointing out other people's fault, and he's reminding them of the mercy of God. Romans 2, 1, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge. You're in God's place. And you're a hypocrite because you practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself? That's hypocrisy. That you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Now listen to this, underline this, highlight this. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's His kindness but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Judgment day is coming, and the person who has nothing to understand, they have not experienced God's mercy, they are religious, and they are better than others in their own view, and they run around fault-finding with others, and Paul the apostle, inspired by the Spirit of God, is saying, all you're doing is storing up the resume, the file that will be used against you in the day of judgment and you're manifesting, you haven't experienced your own sins forgiven in mercy from God? Or how would you be doing this? God delights in showing mercy. Therefore, God's children delight in showing mercy. We're going to be like our father in heaven. We're going to delight in showing mercy. If we delight in severely judging others, there's a real problem there. There's a major heart problem there. Paul understood this so well. We can boldly say, listen, there was mercy for me. There's mercy for you. God showed me mercy, there's mercy for you. Paul did this, Romans 1, or 1 1 Timothy 1, 16. He says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. What is he saying? He owed me death when I was holding the coats for the stoning of Stephen. And he showed me mercy. He was patient with me so that for all time, as we're waiting on Christ to return, we can tell anybody who says, you don't know how bad of a sinner I am. You don't know what I've done and we can say, you're right. But have you heard about Saul of Tarsus? Because he wrote, inspired by the Spirit of God, that he is forever the poster child. If God was merciful with me, you can trust him to be merciful with you. Paul is saying, I was the worst, and he showed me mercy. You want to find a sinner? I beat you in all of it. You want to find a savior? If he saved me, you have nothing to fear. He will save you, but you must come to him. That's what Paul is saying. That's a a humble approach. He's willing to be a channel to give away mercy because it's not his. And leave the judging, the condemnation to God who judges righteously. The second choice we must make is this. Deal with the log in our eye before helping others with the speck in theirs. Deal with the log in your eye, in my eye. It's actually a little humorous what Jesus is doing. It's a little grotesque here using hyperbole. Avoid hypocrisy is what Jesus is saying. Why do you see the speck? that little little piece of sawdust that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log, the tree, the beam that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Start with the man in the mirror. Begin there. Thank you, Michael Jackson, for that quote right there, okay? Jerry Bridges, Respectable Sins, great book. One chapter he deals with is on judgmentalism. Listen to what he says. He says, Most of us can slip into the sin of judgmentalism from time to time. I would say all of us. But there are those among, who, uh, among us who practice it continually. These people have what I call a critical spirit, they look for and find fault with everyone. And everything you know—you know anybody like this? Give them any situation and any environment, and they can find what's wrong. Oh no, no, no! That that table should have been over there. Oh no, no, no! This should have been done that way. Oh this, oh that—they can find anything. They just criticize and pull it apart, regardless of the topic of conversation, whether it's a person, a church, an event, or anything. They end up speaking in a disparaging manner. I'm not writing about theoretical people. I've been with some of them and they are not pleasant to be around. Amen and amen and amen. Jesus gives a warning that's personal here. He says, you, it's a personal, you. He's taking this message and he's applying it to his disciples. The real danger will always be that somebody here is saying, well, I hope my wife is hearing this sermon right now. She needs to be getting this sermon. I hope my kids, I need to send this sermon to so-and-so. They need to get this. Red flag, it's you. You need the sermon. I need the sermon. This is a, this is a difficult sermon. We ought to be asking, how am I like this? It's a little better question than, I don't think I'm like this, am I? Yeah, try that one on someone. I'm not like that, am I? Oh, well, now I'm going to start an argument. If I challenge you, you have just set that up. It's better to say, in what ways am I like this? What areas am I like this? Where do I tend to be critical and harsh and unkind? The example is a use of hyperbole, speck versus log. The beam is obvious to everyone except to one person. Who's the one person that doesn't recognize they have a beam in their eye? The person who has the beam in their eye. And they're running around trying to find, you know, give help to everybody with the speck in their eye, but they have a log in their eye. They have a beam in their eye. And everybody else can see it, just not them. And they're not ever going to ask the question, How am I like this? How do I have logs, beams, trees sticking out of my own eye? What are the glaring areas in my own life that should always remind me, keep my mouth shut and pray for the person? Or I could post on social media and light a fire. No, no. The propensity to pronounce harsh criticism upon another person exposes the serious problem on the part of the critic. Do you remember in 2 Samuel 12 when David sinned with Bathsheba and he thought he covered it all up through the murder of Uriah? And then, oh, I'll be the king, savior, and I'll swoop in. I'll take care of this widow. Oh, she's with child. Oh, I'll adopt that child. Remember David? And then along comes Nathan the prophet, and says, hey, uh, king, I, I, I've got to tell you something. Something's happened in your kingdom. Really? Yes, it's, it's not good. There was a guy down the road here, really wealthy guy, had all kinds of flocks. He had a neighbor, co- he had a friend come in on a journey, and he needed to feed him a dinner. And instead of taking one lamb out of the many that he has, he went down to the poor family, and he, said, and he took their lamb, their one lamb. And he, he just had that thing grilled up, served it to his company. And you wanna know a censorious person? You wanna know a critical, a judgmental person? It's all in David right there in 2 Samuel 12. What did David pronounce upon that man for taking an animal and serving it to his company? Not in my kingdom, he's gonna die. Death penalty. And then Nathan clears his throat and says, with the boldness in the man of God, you're the guy. It's you. And then David is caught in this trap of being hypercritical about a guy who took an animal and he gave himself the, who got away with murder and adultery and lying. But let's really go after the guy who took a lamb. That would be a speck. David's issue, a beam. Romans 14 10, Paul says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. There's no doing away with judgment, beloved. It just is a matter of who's the judge. And if you or I think that we're the judge, we're trying to get into God's seat. That's not the place we belong. We won't survive that this type of person, if they've checked all the boxes, they've memorized the verses, they've done the Bible studies, they're estimating they're doing just fine and they need to go find somebody to confront. If you don't conform to their human standard, and they'll come in and they'll say, pastor, I need to talk to you. They'll say to my wife, I need to talk to you. You're not meeting my standard. I think a pastor's wife, I think a pastor, I think a church should be here, this, that, the next thing. And if you don't do what they ask, what do they do? They manifest that what they have possessed all along is an unforgiving and bitter heart. And they say, I'm gonna go find a place where I can do what I want to do and people will meet my standards. Welcome to speck and beam. Thank you for those who pray for pastors and elders in ministry because the Lord is enough and the Lord sustains. Long should be dispensed the idea that you have a pastor who is perfect. Now I've experienced mercy and grace from God and he sustains through every valley and in every mountain. J.C. Ryle, he says it this way. He says, what our Lord means to condemn is a censorious, there's that word again, and fault-finding spirit, a readiness to blame others for trifling offenses or matters of indifference, a habit of passing rash and hasty judgments, a disposition to magnify the errors and infirmities of our neighbors and make the worst of them. This our Lord forbids. Now listen to me. Isn't it easy to do this about somebody in the other political party? Recently, uh, Stephen, my son-in-law now, I can say this, he was at work, he's a welder, had on the safety goggles, and somehow a speck made it around the goggles into his eye. This This is about a month and a half, two months ago we all tried to help him. Ginger and I tried to help him. His eye was just watering up. We could barely see. I had my headlamp light on, you know. We had the Q-tip. We're working. Emma, helped me. We're, We're all trying to get this speck out of his eye. Fortunately, we did not have a literal beam in our eye, but that speck wasn't going anywhere, so we've know when to fold them, right? Know when to get in the truck. I drove them to the emergency room and they did what they needed to do because that speck was a metal speck already beginning to rust, needed to come out, had to come out through somebody who, so it's not merciful to leave the speck and have people like, come on, man, toughen up, you know, come on. That doesn't help. You have to go to the person who's able to help and get them help. And that brings us to number three. The third choice is deliver help to your brother. Well, what kind of help? Christ-like help, Christ-like help. This is where we avoid apathy. Oh, you'll be all right, come on, man. You know, let me tell you, when I was working and in this, I had that other thing in my eye. That doesn't help, that's not kind. Who cares at that point about your eye? Your brother has something in his eye. What are you going to do about it? You going to help him? You going to help him in a Christ-like way? Well, I tried to help him and they didn't want my help, so forget about them. Does that sound like Jesus? You hypocrite, verse 5 says, first take the log out of your own eye and then... You will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. They need the speck out of their eye. To have apathy is to say, oh, come on, it's just a little speck. It's not that big of a deal. Have you ever had a speck in your eye? It's a big deal. Piece of sawdust, an eyelash, goes rogue, lands in your eye. You know, like, ah, the world needs to stop right now. I have an eyelash in my eye. You know what I'm talking about. What's Jesus saying here? Deal with the sin in your own life first. I must preach this message in the gospel to myself first. This will help us remain sensitive to the dangers of sin. Sin really does hurt. Sin really does destroy. I need to deal with it in my own life first. And this will cause us to rejoice that we have been shown mercy. We've been forgiven. We have to live under the shadow of the cross. There's no room for arrogance there. We can't look down our nose at anybody and say, well, I never struggle with that. Oh, you struggle with pornography? Oh, I've never struggled with that. You struggle with, a, with an eating disorder? Oh, well, there, there's help that is needed. The Lord can provide, but we're gonna have to be Christ-like in how we help. And if we're looking down our nose at someone who struggles with worry or you know, whatever it may be, we're moving out. We gotta stay under the shadow of the cross. Then we humbly, lovingly, and graciously bring help to the brother. Notice that often we're not the help. We're pointing them to the helper. They need the Holy Spirit. They need the one. We can go with them, but ultimately we're not the Savior. Jesus is. So we're not to be belligerent with them. Not just talk louder or share more verses. Text them more verses. That'll fix them. Hang them around, you know, poster them around your house. Yeah, that'll solve the problem. No, it won't. Play Christian music louder. That'll solve the problem. No, it won't. You ever been to the dentist? they are like, oh, you got a cavity, Mr. Wise. Oh, great. So what do they do? They come in with the Novocaine. And if you have a good dentist, he's not like, listen, I'm on a tight schedule here. And we put the Novocaine in and he's going to wait. And then when he comes back after a little bit of time and your face is falling, you know, you can't even swallow anymore. He says, if he's a good dentist or she, hey, if you feel anything, let me know and I'll go down the hall and I'll come back instead of, oh, I gave you technically, how much do you weigh? I gave you enough. It should be good. Here we go. You don't want that dentist. Our objective is the same. Fix the cavity. Yeah, but there's a different way to do it. I'll be back in a little bit. I'll give a little more time. Think about that in our relationships when we're bringing help to someone. Maybe, there's, maybe we need a little more time. Maybe we need a little more prayer. Maybe we need to do a little more thinking about their perspective and what's led to the situation and the condition that they're in instead of just quickly coming with 17 more scriptures. I'm preaching to myself here, so you guys are welcome to listen, okay? Oh, that we're patient and merciful. I think my wife has actually told me this in my life and I've been like, yeah, no, I'm on the right track, only to come back and say, I should have listened to you. And I just get that look. Log, spec. Paul instructed the Galatians, Galatians 6, 1 to 3, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should not be ap- apathetic, but restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's what Jesus is teaching. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So as we think about this right now in this unique time that we live, one area that preoccupies my mind right now and Russ's as well as elders, Here we are a year and a half later after the pandemic and we have brothers and sisters who are missing from fellowship. Things have changed in their world and now if they were to come back, there are people here that have joined and been serving for months that would say, hey, you're new here. Don't judge me because I don't come to church anymore. Don't look down on them. But in love, don't be apathetic. Are you missing a brother and sister in worship? Reach out to them in a Christ-like manner and say, you know, we're commanded to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, and I'm missing you, and I love you. And now that we're in one service, we're seeing who's here, who's not here. Have other things crept in and become more important to you? what's going on, Christ-like help. Christ-like help is so needed. The last choice that we must make is this. We must discern the way and the end of the ungodly. Verse six, your Bible might actually have it partitioned like in a different paragraph, away from the other. Do not give to dogs what is holy And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Discern the way of the ungodly. We need to avoid distractions. Okay, so we have six verses here. Five are given warning to the overzealous, I'm going to go find everybody that's wrong and fix them. But we have one verse that would correct the person who says, not my problem. Think about the areas that can occupy our minds and stop ministry. Now we have to have discernment. Jesus is saying, you actually, you have to have discernment. You have to make a judgment. What type of hearer, what type of person are you dealing with? Because we don't deal with everybody in the same way. Beware of unbelievers who manifest a hatred towards Christ and his kingdom. Jesus is saying there are dogs and there are pigs. And in first century language, the Jewish people would have said, they would have thought of that as Gentiles, as non-believers, as pagans. Those, we're not, think, we're not talking about your household pets. Oh, little, you know, scout, you're so cute. And you're not talking about that. You're talking about wild beasts dogs. They don't care if you have roadkill or Wagyu beef. They cannot discern between the two. And if you think because you're bringing Wagyu beef beef into the middle of the pack of dogs, they're going to say, whoa, I'm going to sit here. He's got Wagyu beef for us. This is amazing. You've not used good judgment. And if you go into a, a pig pen, wild boars can claim all kinds of harvests can even and do claim lives when they run through the streets and run over children. And if you think you can go into that pen and have a mixture and just give them pearls, and they will sit down and say, oh, you've brought us pearls. This is amazing. No, they're going to chomp on that pearl and say, where's the slop, idiot? And they're going to trample the pearl in the mud. Your pearl is gone, and they're coming after you. It's a keyism that Jesus uses here. Do not give dogs what is holy, they'll turn and attack you. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot. So beware, these beasts cause great damage and even death. So this is similar to Proverbs 26, verse 4, where verse 4 says one thing, verse 5 says it seems like the exact opposite here. Uh, Verse 4, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. So that's a no. You see somebody that's foolish, don't, don't, don't lock horns with that guy because you're, they're going to make a fool of you. And then verse five, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And like, wait a second, am I supposed to answer him or am I not supposed to answer him? Exactly, you need discernment. You need discernment. There are some situations you need not meddle in. There are some situations you, you can't avoid, you have to engage in. And you're going to need discernment to know the difference. That's what Jesus is saying here. It comes to the pearls. It comes to the gospel. It comes to the kingdom. We don't approach this. We have to use discernment in sharing the gospel, beloved, but we must share the gospel. We're commanded to take the gospel to all peoples. But listen to what Jesus is saying here. We don't share the gospel in a pre-packaged, one-size-fits-all presentation where we just simply have to fly through the verses, check the box, I shared it with you, now it's on you. Now we have to be sensitive. Jesus answered Pilate when he was on trial in wisdom and in grace and in truth. When Herod said, show me something, he didn't answer him. Didn't say a word to him. And Herod said, get him out of here. We need to discern the receptivity of the person we're communicating with. Is the person well? Is the person intoxicated? Is the person grieving? And so on and so forth. Be sensitive to the situation as you engage. Recently, there was someone that I was called to talk with and it didn't go well. And I left discouraged. I needed this message because the temptation is I failed. I should have done better. I should have read the situation better. I should have had better scriptures. I should have. No. The person is rebellious to the gospel. And maybe you know someone who maybe they used to name the name of Christ and they have turned and they have walked away. They know what's right. And you feel conflicted that how much do I pursue them and share with them when they know they could tell me the message? Maybe they did tell you the message and then you came to faith and they parted ways. Oh, this is, this is life, this is challenging. There's a danger to someone who's immersed in false religions, in conspiracy theories, or may have at one time proclaimed themselves to be a follower of Christ, but now they have abandoned the faith. They are no longer searching for the truth. Instead, they are wanting to, here's what they want to do. This is why Jesus is giving a warning. They want to destroy your faith by leading you into doubt. They want to destroy your testimony by getting you frustrated and angry so that you respond and you just just go for broke and You cuss them out. And they can say, ah, ha, ha, you're trying to talk to me. They want to waste your time so that you're rendered ineffective to minister to anybody else that's waiting to hear the gospel. And so they monopolize your time and my time. Share the gospel. But Jesus said, if they reject you, Knock the dirt off your sandals and go find the person who will be receptive. Keep keep sharing the faith, keep going. Don't don't get discouraged, don't get discouraged. Four choices, delight in mercy over judgment, deal with the log in our own eye before the speck in someone else's, deliver Christ-like help to your brother, discern the way and end of the wicked. That's the way I was on. If you know Christ, that's the way you were on, and in mercy, He saved you. If you're on that way today, He'll save you today. Turn and trust in Him. A few questions. In what areas of my life am I most likely to magnify the faults of others while minimizing my own? Think about that. How should the way God has dealt with me affect the way I interact with others? I think about how merciful God has been to me. How should that change how I deal with others? My wife, my family, my neighbors, my coworkers. What's your next step? What's your next step? To apply the teaching of the Lord Jesus to your life. Take that step today, right now. There may be a conversation that comes out of this message with a loved one saying, will you forgive me? I have lived fault-finding everything wrong with you. It's part of the work that God has done in me. First, quite a few years of our marriage, this was, this was the issue right here. Log in this eye, trying to find a speck in somebody else's eye. And I'm thankful that God is merciful and he forgives and relationships can grow strong in a way that pleases the Lord. Shouldn't that be said of us as a church family? Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for your word and your truth, your grace, your mercy. I thank you that you are patient. You have not repaid me according to my iniquity, my sin, my propensity to be judgmental, but you have shown mercy. Father, I pray that that mercy would flow through me, through us, To those in this church body and those in the world around us, let us be vessels of mercy. For the honor and glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.